What a beautiful prayer that we just sang. That was great. Chip, we're going to have to sing that again. That's good. That's good. Romans chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Romans chapter 15, picking up verse 14. And uh, you'll see there it's a final charge to a church. I got the, uh, the, the goal this morning of landing the plane of Romans. It's been 29 weeks, and I've loved every single chapter of it, every single verse of it. And so the goal is to finish it out today. And uh, so if you'll grab a Bible, you'll need it as we look at Paul's uh, personal address here at the end of the letter of Romans. He uh, begins this missional exaltation as, as a response to what Christ has done in the life of a believer, that we are to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord as our reasonable act of worship. And so that worship expresses itself missionally. So there's a missional exaltation as we gather together, as we welcome one another as brothers and sisters in Christ corporately. As we corporately gather, there is a a worship that takes place in the interactions of the body of Christ that is Christ-centered worship, that as we exalt Christ for who he is and what he has done, that we are all drawn together in union together. We're unified in Christ. And that overflowing worship comes from a contentment of the heart, knowing that he is producing something in us that we're incapable of producing on our own. And so this is a worshipful exaltation that has a witness to the world. It is a worshipful witness that glorifies God in word and deed, that those outside of the body of Christ would see it in the life of the church and see it as worship for what it really is. God is in the process of redeeming worshipers from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. This is why worship is more than just personal feelings and individual responses. It is a corporate and communal offering to the Lord. Worship is not just a personal response, but it's a missional exaltation that is a witness. Worship is more than a song. It's more than a service. It's more than a set list. It's a sacrificial surrender to be used of God for the spreading of his glory to every people. So as we jump into Romans 15, chapter 14, or verse 14, I want you to see a living sacrifice is a worshipful act of priestly evangelism. <clears throat> verse 14, let's read there. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Let's stop right there. A priestly evangelism of a healthy Christian church. 
A priestly evangelism of a healthy Christian church is the first sub-point there. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul here gives three things that make a healthy Christian or make up a healthy church. Number one, it's full of goodness. Full of goodness. A church that is full of goodness. A Christian whose life is full of goodness is, yes, moral excellence, but that moral excellence is exemplified in a loving kindness and sacrificial love for others. When you talk about a church that, man, that's a, that's a church, that's a good church. That church is, that, they're just full of goodness. What you're talking about is not just that they're morally excellent because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but that is a group of people who are sacrificially loving one another in a way that glorifies God. That's a good church. That church is full of goodness. It's a healthy church. It's filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge means that they were doctrinally sound. As Paul writes the book of, or the letter of Romans to them, it is full of doctrinally sound statements over and over and over. This theological teaching that is quite a mouthful and a mindful, they were able to, to understand it because not only were they full of goodness, but their heads were full of understanding of who Christ is. Not only that, but they were growing in their knowledge of Christ. They were filled with it. It means that the wind of their sails was so full that it was, a, it was a pushing way of leading their life. That as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ, the knowledge and understanding of Christ that we have should be what's pushing us towards obedience. Let me ask you, are you someone who is just continually growing in your understanding of who Christ is and is the understanding and the knowledge of who Christ is the motivating factor for your obedience to Christ. This is what a healthy Christian, a healthy church looks like. And not only that, they're able to instruct others, able to admonish, able to help someone else from what they have learned about Christ and what they have learned from spending time in God's word. Gene Getz says this, Paul is talking about an adequate knowledge of Scripture. Admonishment must be based upon God's specific will and ways, not on what we think other Christians should or should not be doing. We must be careful at this point. Many Christians tend to confuse absolutes and non-absolutes. If we exhort Christians in areas that are extra-biblical, areas that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture or specific things that involve cultural standards and practices, then we are in danger of imposing standards contrary to Scripture. Well, there's a lot of churches that are striving for moral excellence. And they're striving for moral excellence in legalism and rule following. And when they begin to instruct others, they're not instructing others in what they've learned of Christ, but they've, they've started to instruct others in what they think they should be doing because of their relationship in the church. And so a healthy church is careful to take the word of God, what they have learned of Christ, what is the motivating factor for their life, and then pour it into the lives of others. It's priestly evangelism. Priestly evangelism is taking people who do not know Christ and being the mediator that brings them into a right relationship with Christ. Priestly evangelism, B. The priestly evangelism of winning souls. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God 
to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. As Tim Keller puts it, Paul sees Gentile converts as his offering to God. This is his worship He sees evangelism as a way of giving God praise and thanks. Just as Romans 12, 1, Paul says, give yourselves totally to God in light of all Jesus has given you. So now Paul says his evangelism is an offering to God in response to all Jesus has given him. Our evangelism is no less part of the way we make an offering of ourselves to Christ. Witnessing is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is a central part of it. Paul's goal in evangelism is not merely some kind of conversion experience, but completely changed lives. He wants people who are obedient and holy toward God. In other words, the object of our evangelism is not to be reduced to some going forward at an altar call or praying a prayer of response and so on. It must be to make disciples of Christ. People have not been evangelized until they have ceased to be their own masters and become joyful servants of the Lord. When Paul speaks of priestly evangelism, he's speaking of of a witness that disciples people into a right understanding. Not only are we full of goodness, right? Not only are we people who are sacrificially giving our lives for the glory of God and the way that we treat one another, not only are we filled with the knowledge of God, but now we're able to instruct and we do it so in a manner that is scripturally sound and we do it in a way that is our worshipful offering back to the Lord. Have you ever thought that the way you witness about Christ in your conversations throughout the week is a worship What an amazing thought that I'm going to worship God in the conversation I'm going to have because as a priestly, as priestly evangelist goes, I'm going to go have conversations with people so that they would not just make a decision, but that I could see their lives completely changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would be a living sacrifice whose sole desire is to see other living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to the Lord. Paul's theology was massive, but so was his missiology. His mission was so grand and so great that even as he finishes the letter, you see his intentions to be used on the altar as a living sacrifice. Charles Hodge says, the obedience of the Gentiles is their belief in God. And so I'm, I'm going to tell us to be careful Be careful not to say we believe the gospel, but not also be surrendered to Christ. We need to be careful because we can't say we believe in Christ if we're not striving to be obedient to Christ. As we look at what it means to be a disciple, it's someone who says, I lay my life on the altar for the worship of God as a living sacrifice. It says in verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. This means he did not only get the message of the gospel across by speaking, but it was also his life's actions that preached the gospel. Now, we must use our words when we preach the gospel. 
we must speak the gospel. Just actions is not enough. However, our actions should back up words that we're saying. John Stott says the combination of words and works, the verbal and the visible, is the recognition that human beings often learn more through their eyes than through their ears. Words explain works, but works dramatize words. The public ministry of Jesus is the best example of this, and after his ascension into heaven, he continued to do and to, de- and to teach through his apostles. It would be wrong to conclude, however, that works means only miracles. One of Jesus' most powerful visual aids was to take a child into his arms. And one of the early churches was their common life and their care for the needy. The church's witness was a worship to God, not just in the things that they said, but in the life change that took place in, in, their, in their lives. Just daily lives were worship to God. It was priestly evangelism. See, the priestly evangelism of world missions. By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Paul's mission strategy was to go where Christ had not yet been named. His strategy was to go to the urban areas and the unreached areas. His strategy is the same as the North American Mission Boards with their sin city like uh, emphasis. They have chosen cities in America that they identify as sin cities where the population growth is of those who are coming from outside of areas that have not had access to the gospel. So we have teamed up with Cincinnati at our own church. We are supporting a church plant in Harrison, Ohio. So I ask that you would pray for Austin Mathis this morning as he gathers together with a church plant as they're just starting off and they're trying to reach people who have maybe never really understood who Jesus Christ is. In fact, just 13.7% of the 2 million residents in the metro area of Cincinnati are affiliated with an evangelical church and more than half of the city's residents do not affiliate with a religion at all. It's been said that if you will reach the cities, you will reach the nations. In fact, the North American Mission Board says this, the face of North America is changing. From 1970 to 2010, the foreign-born population in the United States rose from 4.7% to 12.9%. By 2050, it is expected that half of the U.S. population will be of a different ethnicity than non-Hispanic white. As early as 2004, more than half the residents in the city of Toronto were foreign-born. Globalization has offered North America a unique opportunity in history. Just as Judea was the crossroads for the known world during the time of Jesus, North America has become a modern crossroads of peoples from around the globe. And so we, as the church, in our response to who Jesus Christ is, are to be a living sacrifice in priestly evangelism going and sharing the gospel in both urban and unreached areas. And how do we do that? Number one, with prayerful, or number two, with prayerful engagement. A living sacrifice is a worshipful act of prayerful engagement. Let's pick up there verse 22. 
this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what, I have, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. A prayerful engagement of sending material blessings. Paul has been going around and collecting an offering to take back to Jerusalem. There's obviously a famine that's going on in the area. People are in desperate need. And he says, if you have a spiritual blessing then you should give a material blessing. Those who have received a spiritual blessing are to give a material blessing. James would say, as the leader in the church in Jerusalem, in 2, 14 through 16, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He says, at this present time, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. This means that he was going to take aid from churches to another church. He's helping the poor, and it's not simply saying that he's praying for them, but he's actually giving a material blessing because there has been a spiritual blessing. It's not that it's an option for the church to give. It's an obligation. They're obligated. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. Sharing a material blessing with those in need is to be something that wells up inside of the believer's heart so that it overflows in the lives of others. As we engage the world around us, those of us who have a spiritual blessing of knowing Christ are to then it to pour out of our lives into the lives of others, even in material blessings. It's a prayerful engagement of going and hosting says in verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul's plans did not go as he penned. In fact, he did make it to Rome, but he made it to Rome in chains. And there's no inclination that would suggest that he ever made it to Spain. There's no evidence historically that shows that he made it to Spain. But the fact that he sought to go and that he wrote of being hosted by the believers gives us a blueprint of missional 
engagement. That we are to be zealous, zealous senders and zealous goers, as John Piper says. We are called to engage in the mission of God. Some of us will go. Some of us will send material blessings. Some of us will open our homes and host brothers and sisters. The fact is we should all long to do something that aligns with the mission of God for the glory of God. There should be something within us that longs to be a part of what God is doing globally. It's a prayerful engagement of striving together. I appeal to you, brothers, verse 30, by our Lord Jesus Christ, that by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Christians can always participate in missions through fervent prayer. And that's not a cop-out. We are all called to strive prayerfully with those on the front lines. Warren Wearsby says this, the word strive together suggests an athlete giving his best in a contest. Think about your prayer life this way. Perhaps the words wrestling together better express the idea. It means our praying must be a, not be a casual experience that has no heart or earnestness in it. We should put as much fervor into our praying as a wrestler does into the wrestling match. Can you imagine praying for those on the front lines like a wrestler wrestling? It's, it's the word agonize. That our prayers, we would agonize, that we would strive together in our prayers for those on the front lines. Christians can always come alongside those whom they've never met through prayer. We can give our time in prayer to those who are giving up their lives to be lived on the front lines in areas where people have not heard the name of Christ. We may not be on the mission field, but we are always engaged on the mission when we engage by getting on our knees and praying. Let's do that right now. Gracious Father, it's a miraculous plan to use the body of Christ for the furthering of your glory to the nations, that you would call people out of pews and put them on the front lines, not to make converts, but to make disciples to see people's lives change, that their lives would be surrendered to Jesus Christ and that their hearts would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that they would experience eternity with you the way you designed it. Father, right now, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in harm's way. I pray for those who are in unreached people groups who are under disguise. I pray for those whose lives are in danger, who have to guard their words carefully for fear of being attacked. Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen them by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would give them the aid that is needed, the encouragement that is needed from the local church. Father, that you would help us to engage prayerfully, help us to engage with material blessings and help us to engage physically by going. Lord, I pray that you would call out people from this congregation to go on the mission field. Father, we pray for those who are giving their lives as a living sacrifice for your glory in 
the way of missions to the unreached people groups of this world. Put within us a desire and a burning desire in our heart to engage and to go and to send and to support. In Christ's name, amen. As we finish, we get to chapter 16. You'll need to follow along. We've got some good words to read here. A living sacrifice is a worshipful act of perceptive evaluation. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of century, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Ephenatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asynchristus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Let's stop right there. Do we want to stop and greet one another with a holy kiss? No, we'll pass. We'll pass on that one today. How about it? A, a perceptive evaluation of fellow saints. Paul here gives a lengthy list of fellow saints and faithful friends in the gospel. And not only that, he lists five house churches in this list. He's addressing the leaders of the churches that meet in Rome. This is a network of churches in Rome, and Paul is greeting them and listing the leaders on purpose so that they would see and take perceptive evaluation of those who are working hard in the midst. This list of 28 people has several women that are mentioned as key leaders in the church. He even mentions a few power couples in the gospel that are using their lives for the advancement of, of the church. Both men and women striving alongside one another to fulfill the call of God for the glory of God. And they're working together in a complementary manner that is, that is working together for the expansion of his kingdom. And it is all a grace of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it's a grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. Today, and I've used this quote before, this is a grace of God right now. This is a beautiful gift of his grace that we do not deserve, that we are allowed to gather together here today and look at one another in the face and welcome one another and love one another and share with one another because we have been united in Jesus Christ. This is how important the church was back then, and that's how important the church is today. The gathering body of believers was addressed in Paul's letter to Rome because it's important. Think back 
with me to the Garden of Eden. When man was created, everything was good, except it was not good for him to be alone. Meaning that you can't even enjoy a perfect, unfallen world without relationships. We need one another. We were created by God to need one another. You cannot miss, this is what Tony Marita says, you cannot miss the emphasis on relationships here, whether you choose to use the word fellowship or community or friendship. The fact is, the text reminds us of so much of the Christian life revolves around relationships. One of the joys of the Christian life is going together, hanging together, laughing together, playing together, eating together, praying together, weeping together, thinking together, dreaming together, planning together, doing missions together, and worshiping together. This is what the community of the saints does. This is what Christian friends do. This is how important the local gathering of the body of believers is. So if the community is so important to the life of the believer, you better believe it's going to be under attack. A perceptive evaluation of false teachers. What has the potential to destroy a God-glorifying worship in a church that gathers? False teachers. Verse 17, follow with me there. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Stop right there. False teachers come in and they undermine worship with, the, with divisive doctrines, with smooth talk, with flattery. With that deceptive talk, they feed on naive and unassuming brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is clearly writing to a fellowship of churches, and he's warning them to watch out for false teachers, to maintain the tight family feel of relationships that they have. And he's, a warning, he's warning them not to allow wrong teaching to enter its way into the church. And so he's not just talking about the one who preaches on Sunday morning, but he's also talking about all who teach, whether in small group or Sunday school classes or one-on-one discipleship. Be wary of false teaching that causes divisions in the church. So I'm going to give you three things that you can evaluate when it comes to teaching in the church. And I'll, I'll give these because I need to be held to these. Number one, is the teaching of the church Christ-centric? Meaning, does it hold to the total biblical narrative of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? Is it Christ-centric? Is Christ exalted in the teaching? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. The teaching that is taking place in the local church should be about Jesus Christ, him, what he has done on our behalf, not what we have to do. So is it Christ-centric? Number two, is it gospel-centric? Is it gospel-centric? Does it proclaim the good news of Christ's finished work through his life, death, and resurrection? The gospel is good news, not a call to good works. The gospel is a declaration of good news of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's not a call to good works. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. There's two things that are working against a gospel-centric message, and that is 
moralism and antinomianism. These are the two pillars on either side. They're working against a gospel-centric message. Moralism being, you need to be a good person, and when you're a good person, God's pleased with you. Antinomianism is, no laws whatsoever, live however you want, and grace is going to abound. There is a gospel-centric message that is between those two polar opposites. And here's the third one. Is it scripture-centric? Is it Christ-centric? Is it gospel-centric? Is it scripture-centric? Is the teaching based on opinions, interpretations, or feelings from the culture? Or is it scripturally heavy and doctrinally sound? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and he speaks to us by his authority in Scripture alone. And we hold to that Scripture. See, a perceptive evaluation of Satan's schemes. Satan's schemes. John Stott identified three ways Satan attempts to hinder the church's advancement. Suppression, corruption, and distraction. A church that is tight, a church that is family, a church that is in relationship with one another, a church that is healthy, that is full of goodness, that is filled with knowledge, that is teaching others what is learned, will be under attack in one of these three ways. Suppression. Suppression comes from outside forces. It is persecution. It is fear. It is things that are imposed upon the church that would cease to, they would try to make it quiet. Another one is corruption. When sin and immorality creeps its way into the church, it has a, has a tendency to cause divisions. So we must be weary of, wary of those things that seek to work their way into the church. And distraction. Taking our focus off of Christ and placing it on ourselves. And when a church takes its focus off of Christ and places it on itself, it always results in complaining, gossiping, and backbiting. Satan's schemes are to use even the people of God against the other people of God, to cause divisions, and then to wreck the worship of a witness in the life of others. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Final warning in his last little bit of writing here is, with perceptive evaluation, avoid troublemakers in the body of Christ. And avoid becoming a troublemaker in the body of Christ. Avoid getting sucked into conversations and controversies that cause divisions in the body of Christ. Avoid false teachers who teach contrary to the gospel. Watch out for teachers who teach false doctrines, who add to or take away from the word of God so that it tickles the ears of those who are listening. Such people are not in it for the building up of the kingdom, but they're building up their own kingdom. As John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. When Satan comes in with his schemes, he's coming to steal, to kill, and destroy the fellowship of the local body. 
The enemy of the church is seeking to use people to steal our joy in Christ by leading us towards sin, kill our fellowship by causing divisions, and destroy our worshipful witness in a community and a world around us by turning us inward on each other and immobilizing us with ill will. So church, for the glory of God, be in perceptive evaluation of your heart, your words, your intentions, your bitterness. Don't become naive to the attacks of the enemy. Don't allow the enemy to use you as a pawn in the attack on his church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. My kinsman, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer and brother, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Let me end with this benediction. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.